TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Daniel Ellsberg on Freedom of the Press, Julian Assange, and the Risk of Nuclear War. At the end of April 2023, film and radio producers, journalists, and nonprofit organizations, even city councils across the U.S., began celebrating Daniel Ellsberg's life and dedication to peace and freedom of speech and his personal courage. Of course, he's best known for the release of the Pentagon Papers, a top-secret study of the decision-making of the U.S. government in relation to the war in Vietnam, how long it had been planned for, and how, like the bombing of Iraq, lies were used to actually begin the war in Vietnam. In January 1973, Ellsberg was charged under the Espionage Act of 1917, carrying a maximum sentence of 115 years. Since the Espionage Act was first used against him, it was also levied against other so-called U.S. whistleblowers and against Julian Assange. As Australian national, he is not even under U.S. jurisdiction. Daniel Ellsberg has used his experience to defend Julian Assange and other whistleblowers, even up to current days, when it has become known that he received a cancer diagnosis that gives him only a few more months to live. Frank Barra spoke with Daniel Ellsberg on January 19, 2023. He's a French activist, author and film producer, and has edited books with Ilan Pape, Noam Chomsky, Angela Davis, and Vijay Prashad. Here's Frank Barra. Hello, Daniel. It's a, it's a pleasure to, uh, to talk to you, and thanks for making the time, actually, to talk to me and, and answer a few questions. In 1971, with uh, your colleague at the RAND Corporations, you released the Pentagon Papers. I was wondering if WikiLeaks or an organization such as WikiLeaks had existed at the time. Could things have been different? Would things have been different, you think? Yes, they, they could well have been different. I actually copied the papers in order to give them to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the first instance, which I did do in 69, almost two years before I gave them to the New York Times. And they repeatedly uh, were ready to use them and then backed off a couple, two or three times actually, encouraged me to think they would be about to come out. And I did think that was the best place for them to come out because they could hold hearings and swear in witnesses uh, on oath and confront them with these documents and ask questions. So I thought that was the best channel for raising these issues about history. But they did back off, and I got very discouraged with them. I wasn't really confident the New York Times would ever come out with them because of the classified nature. Uh, and I might well have gone, if WikiLeaks had existed, I certainly would have considered uh, giving them to WikiLeaks at that point when I got discouraged with the Senate ever holding hearings. And 
Then, when I did give them to the New York Times, uh, Neil Sheehan, for reasons that remain somewhat mysterious, chose not to tell me that they were going ahead with them. He risked, in other words, my giving them to somebody else at that time. And in fact, I did deal with other uh, senators and with a representative to get them out in Congress. I didn't think any other newspaper was likely to print them at length, which, of course, WikiLeaks would be perfect for doing if they had existed in digital form, if we could scan them at that point. At that point, these were all hard copy. So Xeroxing them was a very long process, and it, you ended up with 7,000 pages. Digitally, uh, of course, that would be uh, nothing. So uh, yes, uh, in terms of waiting for the times, I would not have waited as long as I did. I didn't think they were coming out at all until the very day uh, that they were going to uh, publish them. So, uh, and I would have said that since, people have asked me that since, what would I ask, urge people to do now? And I still would say that a combination of Congress and the press, uh, not just the press in general, but the New York Times, the Washington Post, one or two of the major national papers, uh, would be probably get the most attention at first in terms of printing large amounts of material. And I would try those first. But if they delayed, as was often the case, uh, I would then give them to, uh, to WikiLeaks. Conceivably, you could start with WikiLeaks. Uh, people have had some bad luck with other channels uh, being found out. So yes, uh, the fact that it does still exist uh, is is uh, worthy, I think, is, uh, is a good thing. Uh, I work on a, a group called the Freedom of the Press Foundation, which I helped to found at John Perry Harlow. And uh, they actually were started in order to channel money to WikiLeaks uh, at a time when the, thanks to government influence, uh, nearly all the funding channels had been cut off. Uh, that's, I think that's not true now, but uh, we managed to get money to them. So I think that answers your question. Uh, the fact that it is there makes it available when the rest of the media back off. Thanks, Daniel. You were prosecuted with the Espionage Act. Um, yes, I was yeah. the first one to be uh, prosecuted under that act. Uh, we don't have an official secret act as Britain does, because our war of independence from Britain resulted in a First Amendment, which they don't have, uh, which forbids Congress to pass any law abridging freedom of speech or freedom of the press. And uh, most countries don't have that with respect to the press, uh, even now. So in theory, uh, there shouldn't be any law which uh, can limit this. The question is, is the Espionage Act, uh, the way the Supreme Court looks at it, acceptable as an abridgment of free speech in the sense of being narrowly constructed and, and just for a purpose that Congress endorses, such as to a very limited degree, libel in this country, or obscenity, uh, or espionage, for that matter? And the answer is no. It definitely is not a constitutionally acceptable uh, substitute for an official secrets act. And a British-type official secrets act, which most countries have, would clearly be unconstitutional, criminalizing any and all release of any classified information, information that the government wants to keep from others, usually from the American public above all, or our allies, and to a small degree, 
from enemies. Uh, very, uh, very little of it actually uh, do requires protection from foreigners. A lot of it requires protection from political rivals in the U.S., other agencies, or Congress, which controls the budget. So a lot of that information, in other words, must be out, should be out, and is wrongfully held. My trial did not result in either a verdict or an, uh, an opinion because governmental crimes were discovered just before it went to the jury that led to the uh, dismissal of the trial and the charges against me. And really, there wasn't another case for another 10 years or so, and, uh, and one after that, three in all, before President Obama. But then President Obama brought about nine such cases, and Trump did the same in his first term. So uh, there is an increasing use. The use against Julian Assange is the first time that they've used that act against, which is intended for spies, giving secret information secretly to a foreign power, especially an enemy in wartime. And uh, Julian's case is the very first one they've used it against a journalist as opposed to a source like me, a former official who has possession of the material and shares it. So it's a blatant violation of the First Amendment and really there wouldn't be much left in this broad undefined area known as national security, which can cover almost anything the president chooses uh, in terms of restricting information. It would essentially be rescinded. Our war of independence would have failed in that, in that respect. And really the next step would be to use it against people who simply read the material or receive the material, which uh, is in the Espionage Act. Uh, actually, it's written in such a way that uh, it can be used in non-espionage cases such as mine. They didn't, they didn't charge me with being a spy. It's a non-espionage use. The wording of it can be used against anybody who receives the material. That can be in the media uh, when the source gives it to them. And anybody, by the way, who holds it and possesses it and does not return it to a proper authority. Now, former President Trump is being uh, investigated right now for that violation of the wording of the act. And President Biden is subject to it right now, and they found classified material in his possession. Now, in the case of President Trump, he resisted turning over that material when it was specifically demanded, and uh, is therefore comes more clearly under the act. But just to show the ridiculous breadth of this act, in a country that wants to be a democracy or a republic without a monarch who decides uh, everything uh, in the way of information that can be put out, I revealed that I had possessed and had not given it to authorities a top secret document about the Taiwan Straits crisis of 1958 in which we came very close to nuclear war. And I put that out just a year ago uh, through the New York Times uh, Charlie Savage on the New York Times, who could have been charged uh, just the way, same way Julian Assange was. And for that matter, anyone at the Times or their readers could have been charged. Uh, and I made a point of that just recently to, to show that how unconstitutional this application of the act actually is. They didn't question me or do anything about that. So just to make the point a little stronger, uh, I revealed in an interview with the BBC just a month or two ago that I had possessed 
all of the material that Chelsea Manning had given to Julian Assange before Assange gave it to the newspapers. He conveyed it to me as a backup uh, in case his material was seized. And uh, I didn't have to put it out because the newspapers did. But I am therefore as prosecutable by the standards of the Justice Department, with which I disagree. Uh, but by their standards, I am as subject to prosecution as any of the people they have prosecuted or as Julian Assange themselves. And the reason I raised this was um, that if he's not to be the subject of selective prosecution, which he is actually, but if it isn't to be blatant, uh, they can uh, bring the prosecution against me uh, along with him. And I will certainly not make a plea bargain. Uh, with the Justice Department. They can't really threaten me as they have others with life imprisonment as they do uh, the other people, which gets them to admit to a lesser charge because life imprisonment doesn't mean the same for me as it did 50 years ago. And I risked that anyway at the time. So we'll try to take this to the Supreme Court and get them at last to rule on this, which they have never done. Thanks, Daniel. So that'll be my last question. You've, you've recently said, I am Julian Assange, and you've in a way explained this now, but I wanted to ask you, what does the persecution of Julian means to all of us, uh, journalists, oh, yes. citizens? Even if he were an American citizen, this would be unconstitutional. And it is with respect to him also. That applies to the United States. But actually to uh, try to extradite uh, an Australian who is in Britain in custody at this time and who gave his information to Le Monde, uh, El Pais, uh, the British Guardian as well, and uh, Der Spiegel in Germany uh, means that our Justice Department feels uh, justified in trying to extradite any journalist in the world, anywhere, in any newspaper, and conceivably any reader. Yes, we do get into a ridiculous area there. Anyone who holds the information, including holding a newspaper that has acknowledged that they're presenting classified information. And uh, obviously, they're not going to do that to everyone. They can select who they want uh, as a scapegoat for this charge anywhere in the world. So this puts a bullseye on the back of any journalist that has the courage, actually, to print information that the American government does not want told to its own citizens or to its allies or to anyone in the world. The information such as Chelsea Manning revealed through Le Monde, uh, in this case, we've gotten it from Assange, about our knowledge of the corruption of Ben Ali in Tunisia, which everyone knew that uh, Ben Ali was corrupt. They didn't know that the American government fully acknowledged that in their support of him. And that revelation implied that they could resist Ben Ali, as they did nonviolently, without being assured that the American government would oppose them. It would be embarrassing for the American government to support this man, which they themselves knew was both corrupt and tyrannical. So there was a revelation that didn't affect the U.S. particularly, but uh, did in fact lead to a nonviolent overthrow of a tyrant in Tunisia. And um, 
that would certainly be subject to extradition on that point by the U.S. government if Julian Assange continues to be, uh, the effort continues to extradite him and to prosecute him. No, no journalist in the world is safe from that, whether they are protected by a First Amendment or not. They're not protected even in the U.S. anymore with this prosecution, even uh, if, it, if it ends. The, uh, the very fact that it has occurred is, a, as they say, a cooling effect. That is a freezing communication uh, on matters of great public importance. So there's already been a cost. But if public uh, protest can lead to dropping this extradition, as President Biden should do yesterday, today, tomorrow, that will at least clear the way for uh, honest investigative journalism. Huge thanks, Daniel, for, for taking the time to do this. That was a conversation between Daniel Ellsberg and Frank Barra. They met on Zoom on January 19, 2023. You can find the film on YouTube under the title Frank Barra Talks to 1971 Whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg on Freedom of the Press and Julian Assange. As part of the celebration of Daniel Ellsberg's life, the issue of nuclear war is looming large. Ellsberg's fame for disclosure of the Pentagon Papers overshadows another set of documents that focused on nuclear war and nuclear policy. He managed to copy the papers, but sadly, almost all the original documents were lost in a landslide. On May 22, 2021, during the Biden administration, the New York Times reported that Daniel Ellsberg had just released classified documents revealing the Pentagon in 1958 drew up plans to launch a nuclear attack on China amid tensions over the Taiwan Strait. According to the documents, U.S. military leaders supported a first-use nuclear strike, even though they believed China's ally, the then-Soviet Union, would retaliate and millions of people would perish. Here's part of an interview that Paul Jay held on September 21, 2022, that gives a contemporary cast to the problem. The title of the interview is why is Biden risking nuclear war with China? Paul Jay is a journalist and filmmaker. He's the founder and host of TheAnalysis.News, a video and audio current affairs interview and commentary show. Paul Jay begins with a clip from 60 Minutes with Joe Biden. Hi, welcome to TheAnalysis.News. I'm Paul Jay. Here's what Biden said on 60 Minutes. What should Chinese President Xi know about your commitment to Taiwan? We agree with what we signed on to a long time ago, and that there's a one-China policy, and Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. We are not moving, we're not encouraging them being independent. We're not, let, that's their decision. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. To be clear, sir, U.S. forces U.S. men and women would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. Yes. Analysts in the U.S. and elsewhere, including Chinese, 
are saying this sounds like the end of strategic ambiguity over Taiwan. And it also seems that, once again, the White House has tried to walk it back a little bit, claiming the one-China policy is still in effect. But how there's a one-China policy and a commitment to use American soldiers to defend Taiwan uh, seems to at least escape me. Now joining me again is Daniel Ellsberg. Thanks very much for joining me. One of the very few reasons I can think of for this very provocative behavior undermining the our supposed commitment to a one-China policy, which Biden and everybody else have always announced and are still announcing. In other words, that Taiwan is a province of China, which the Chinese certainly regarded as being, not just Xi and all of his previous leaders. In fact, their nationalist feelings have focused for a long time, I understand, on the eventually being strong enough and taken seriously enough to regain control of Taiwan. In other words, that's a red line uh, that we are rushing right toward to cross, not only by Biden and not only by these congressional bills, but the visits uh, by Congress leaders treating uh, Taiwan as a sovereign state, in effect, which is totally contradictory to the uh, one China policy. Now, why would China particularly be concerned about that, aside from the fact that it's a nationalistic uh, mantra that Taiwan is not an independent state of China, something that Taiwan agreed with uh, almost unanimously until this century, till the last 20 years. Now, the best reason I can think of, one of the few <laughs> effective reasons, is to sell more arms to Taiwan, and we have yet done. The 1979 agreement uh, with China, recognizing mainland China as the sole uh, ruler of all China, including Taiwan, uh, did by congressional, uh, simultaneous congressional action, allow for us to sell defensive weapons to Taiwan under a certain ceiling. And we pretty much observed that. I think we can be sure that Raytheon and Lockheed and uh, Raman, uh, Raman, the others, would like to break through that, just as they are doing marvelously in Europe now uh, and Ukraine directly. They would like to be able to sell uh, weapons the same way they do to uh, other NATO countries. But beyond that, also, the uh, before 1979, Taiwan was in effect a U.S. military protectorate uh, since 1949, when the communists took power in the mainland. The Seventh Fleet was used to prevent any continuation of the Civil War, which had, up to that point had uh, led to the victory of the Chinese Communist leadership. Uh, the Seventh Fleet was there to protect them with threat of nuclear weapons, as I revealed uh, last year with some top secret documents that are still being kept top secret on the fact that we were threatening and prepared to use nuclear weapons to defend Taiwan and possibly even the offshore islands, which are within sight uh, a few miles off the uh, Chinese mainland. So that ended in 79. Up till that time, we had bases on Taiwan, which you can be sure the Navy and Air Force were very happy to have, and I'm sure would be glad to get back. We had, I'm virtually sure, I believe, nuclear weapons there. I visited there in 1960 for the Defense Department, 
And uh, there were nuclear weapons there at that time. They would like to get those back. Well, it's very obvious China has, in this case, not just nationalistic, but significant security reasons for not wanting that to happen. And strictly speaking, they don't even have to be in NATO uh, to do that, or, nor would Ukraine have had to be in NATO for U.S. bases to be there. There could be, uh, for other European powers, it could be bilateral arrangements uh, then and now, which uh, would allow for that. And obviously, uh, Russia was reasonably concerned uh, not to let that happen. And actually, I believe uh, there were word, there was word that Biden was definitely prepared to negotiate on that, on that point, on basing and weapons. But in any case, in Taiwan, the Chinese, I think it's a it's a recipe. It, it's hard to understand that as other than a desire to bring about a war between China and the U.S. Given the Chinese repeated vociferous uh, position for the last 70 years that they will not reallow, they will not allow again uh, foreign bases, U.S. bases, uh, threatening them from uh, Taiwan and or and preventing them from uh, peaceful reunification in Taiwan. Whether they actually want, which is hard to believe, an actual war, they are certainly risking it. But for whatever reasons, they are gambling here on such a war. And one thing that Biden is not, and I'm afraid not going to uh, remove in terms of ambiguity, is whether he will use nuclear weapons if necessary to defend Taiwan. Is he going to say, to remove that ambiguity and to say, no first use, we will not initiate the stages of blowing up the world to defend Taiwan or anywhere else, or the Ukraine. By the way, he could easily afford to say that in Ukraine, no first use by the US, and to try to shame Russia uh, from the threats that Putin is actually making now in imitation of the threats we made for so many years. But what's changed in Europe is that the Warsaw Pact countries, aside from Russia, moved over to NATO. And so the conventional uh, the conventional balance is totally changed there. And there's no pretense of a need for us to threaten nuclear war in Ukraine. Putin is doing it for the other reason and with no more justification than the US had for doing it for the previous half century. To come back to Taiwan, there the situation is different. The Chinese for 20 years, more than 20 years, since Clinton sent two carriers into the Taiwan Straits to intimidate them in, I think it was 1996, uh, they had been building up that area. So we, well, the US can't make threats like that and can't act with impunity in that area uh, anymore. And in this case, I don't think Biden will be willing to give up the kind of threat that Putin is making if he were on a losing side in Ukraine. He won't give it up, and he should. It's outrageous for either party here, either superpower, to be using the threat of initiating nuclear war uh, for any reason whatever. And uh, it should not be. Uh, uh, whatever Taiwan's reasonable, realistic concerns, uh, it should not be the case in this century that we are defending and protecting any other place by the threat to blow the world up. That was part of an interview with Daniel Ellsberg, held by Paul Jay on September 21st, 2022.
You can find the full 43-minute film on YouTube under the title Why is Biden Risking Nuclear War with China? This rebroadcast is part of a celebration of the work and life of Daniel Ellsberg. He recently disclosed that he has pancreatic cancer and has only three to six months to live. He has remained active and productive and wrote that his editor knows that he works better under a deadline. And Ellsberg adds, quote, It turns out that I also live better under a deadline. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Geleuden. Thank you for listening.